as ignorable as it is interesting. Yes, that's our theme. Ambient style uh, is, in many respects, no style at all, as as we have relentlessly documented <laughs> here on Blueprint, that, that aesthetic du jour. Uh, it's not, however, uh, limited to the grage of cafes in which we eat our bland avocado and blindingly white tasteless burrata, uh, nor to the grage interiors of our domestic spaces. No. Uh, For for the latest instalment about how everything looks the same and looks like nothing at all, uh, we turn our attention to typefaces, specifically one called Neutraface. It's been dubbed the gentrification font, and ideally placed uh, to give us an understanding of how and why this typeface became so ubiquitous And what that ubiquity might signify is Angela Rikers, award-winning writer, art director and educator. Uh, Her newest book is The Elements of Visual Grammar, a designer's guide for writers, scholars and professionals. Angela, welcome. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Before we we get to the font in question and how that becomes a a signifier of gentrification, we should perhaps go back to to basics. This idea of of visual grammar, can you tell us what you mean by that? Well, you know, from the time that we're small and we go to school, we learn about our spoken and written language. We learn, you know, the building blocks, letters that make words, that make sentences, that makes paragraphs, that end up being texts that express our ideas. So much of our language these days is visual, and yet we're never taught how visual language works unless we Mm. go to art school for the most part. So um, the idea of visual grammar is simply to kind of instill the idea in most people's minds of like, how do images work, especially in conjunction with text? Like, what is it? How, how do they do what it is that they do? You know, I wonder how the world would change for us if, if like you, we, we had a better understanding of these things. Well, you know, I, I, I think that there's a real need for this because you know, very often you'll see people putting together, say, a presentation or a slide deck or something, and the images are not telling the story that the person's words are telling, simply because they don't really know how to do that. And I, I just think the world would be a richer place if, mm. if people felt more comfortable. I think people feel intimidated when they're asked to choose images, and yet most of us know a good image when we see it. Like when we look through a bunch of pictures, we're like, oh, I like that one. And most people will pick the same one. So on one level, we do know it. But on a confidence level, I think that's where people kind of hesitate a little bit. There's there's that element of it. But as you say, these are things that we respond to quite strongly, but in, intuitively. Uh, and, and, exactly. And, and, and there are many out there who, who <laughs> whose work it is to manipulate those responses. <laughs> Well, that's the other thing. It's like we're all pretty visually sophisticated, but I think unless you go to art school, you don't really get the ability to map the language onto what you're seeing. Mm. You know, like this picture is a metaphor. This picture is a journalistic image that is meant to shock and provoke outrage and maybe even a change. Like most people don't really think of images in those terms. They just react kind of, as you said, intuitively or viscerally to an image. In, in your book, you, you set out a handily a set of principles. Can you can you briefly talk us through those? Well, you know, I think the principles of visual grammar are are some really basic things like color. How does that function? Because you know it functions differently across different cultures. 
composition sort of image category? Is it a di- is it a diagram? You know, is it um, a photograph? Is it a abstract photograph, or is it like a I was there and I took a picture of this thing right as it happened kind of photograph? So those are the kind of basic principles that swirl around at the beginning, and then you have to think about when, once you're more comfortable with that, then you have to think about like what is your strategy? How will hmm. my images tell my story in the way that I want them to? And I think mood is a really important piece of that, you know, and it's just not not something that is easy to verbalize until you've started practicing that. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> <laughs> a, a tricky element. I, you mentioned images, but 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 fonts, the the image of words, that clearly plays a significant place in this world. Fonts in general, the, where do they sit in this this visual landscape? Well, they they're they're kind of like the bridge in a way because the typefaces perform two functions. They kind of contain the content of people's thoughts, right? Like they make the words and the sentences that explain the thoughts. And so they have to simply convey information. They're like sort of, you know, vessels for information, if you will. But there's also the other function that I find the most fascinating, which is that when you see a certain typeface, you have an emotional reaction that probably happens like very deep within like, you know, your your primitive brain. You know, I liken it to when you're walking down the street, and you see somebody with a really adorable dog, you don't think, oh, look, a cute dog. I'm going to say, oh, good boy. You just say it. It just comes. <laughs> and I think that's the level that fonts hit us on first. It's like a visual emotional level. And it gives you a clue about what kind of information is contained within, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And, and that's the world in which we find Neutraface. Um, for listeners unfamiliar and, and given, the, given the limitations of our verbal medium, Angela, I wonder if you could describe it to us. Well, okay, so Neutraface was inspired um, by the work of an architect who was known for, you know, clean, clean lines, clean beautiful modernist images and so it's a very it's a very nice looking typeface um it is a sans serif it looks very beautiful in thin weights it also looks lovely in very heavy weights so it has a lot of versatility so it was inspired by austrian american architect richard neutra who was famous for his modernist designs and um it's just a very very beautiful clean face it's thin it has kind of an open like airy feel the letters have these beautiful, very sharp peaks, and it's very legible even from a distance, which I think is mm. how <laughs> it got into its second life, kind of as as a house number typeface. Okay, well that yes. What are we trying to say with house numbers? We're trying to say here I am, but but also here I am, person in taxi driving past quickly. You you want legibility and instantly instant recognizability. Well, yes, and what's interesting is to me is that these these Neutraface um, house numbers come in huge size. They're like about, I don't know, six to eight inches tall. Mm. And most house numbers are not that big. And frankly, pretty much anything would be legible at that size. <laughs> yes. So it, this it's, it's almost not about the legibility. It's about like a different look for your house in a way. You know, I don't have these little dinky kind of hokey looking house numbers that we all are so used to. I have something new and big and modern looking, you know? I mean that it is very distinctive. It has proportions that are not all that typical for like a display typeface, meaning something that's not used to to 
carry text, although it does have a text weight, but, you know, uh, they're using the display version for the um, for the house numbers. But, you know, it has these distinctive little quirks that, that make it much more uh, its own thing than, say, like something like a Helvetica, say. And it's in that, as you say, it's a sans serif, it's in that potentially that that family which gives us the the design pinnacle of, of Helvetica. Um, and yet it's, it has, as you say, more character than that. Yes, it definitely does. It, it looks very modern. Well, it what, looks very modern. Is that the key to its popularity with, with both designers and, and, and the real estate industry? For the real estate industry, I think that it just got started with design within reach, which is where you go when you want to buy like, you know, authorized reproductions of like, you know, classic modern furniture from, you know, like the mid last mid-century. Mm-hmm. So I think by them offering it, it became like a stamp of approval. It's like, this is the tasteful, cool thing for your house. Like they, I think they could have easily offered other typefaces for house numbers and they would have probably sold just as well. Quite honestly, it, like somebody decided this goes along possibly with their brand, with, with their design within reach brand. It's what they're trying to convey. So they made it available. But I, I don't really know. I mean, I, I know nothing about their marketing strategies, so I could be completely off base <laughs> with that. But, y- you know, I, I do feel like like if they offered a range of house numbers, people would buy those too. <laughs> Is this why it's come to be dubbed the, the gentrification font? Because when you, when you see it in your street, you know what's afoot. Well, you know, it, it certainly was not available, you know, I forget when it was first introduced as, as house numbers, uh, around 2020. So it wasn't really available before that. So before that, you had other options for your house numbers. And, you know, some of them look really familiar. Like if you live in the suburbs, it's kind of an italic-y, heavy, mm-hmm. almost calligraphic house number font. And then there's the really plain kind of, it's like a condensed Gothic kind of font that you see on mailboxes usually. The stickers you can buy at like the hardware store to put on your mailbox just for your house number. So it wasn't really available. So I think as like neighborhoods change and people like in in Philadelphia where I live, there is prefabricated housing going up everywhere and there's not much design to them for the most part. It's like a box with two windows and aluminum siding. And then they put these house numbers on them. And truthfully, the house numbers have the most style of any element of that building. So I think it's an attempt to bring a little style, you know, to somewhat ordinary, uh, structures. Although, you know, when people renovate like like row houses or townhouses and they put them on, it's almost like a signal, like an announcement, like, okay, I've now made my house fresh. I've, I've refreshed mm. it. And yet in, in very much the modern way, refreshed it in a way that is both, yeah, a, a suggestion of stylishness, but also a, it's an inoffensive stylishness, is it not? There's nothing that would shock or dismay here. This is a thing which suggests style, but without, you know, any great sort of character or presence. Well, that's the re- another really interesting thing about this kind of, quote, gentrification font phenomenon is that, it, you know, it is it is just a typeface. And because it's different, because it's a recent thing, because it's big, in this this product that's now available, it's big and it goes, you know, right in your face, you know, on the front of the building. It's like, it. Came, I think that's how it came to be associated with like a changing neighborhood. Yes, 
I mean, I'm interested too in where that fits with the other aspects of that change because I suspect the the changed houses in that neighbourhood will also have these these modern elements of um, a fairly ubiquitous design uh, sense in them, the, the greyness, the occasional colour pop cushion, uh, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the things done to suit uh, a really broad uh, range of... of of, of aesthetics amongst people who might want to buy or live in these places. it's It treads a really interesting line of, of attractiveness and neutrality. I, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think you're, you're spot on with that because it's like saying here's a little style but nothing that people are going to say, whoa, that's crazy, you know. <laughs> so in, into the if, – if we were better schooled uh, – to take us back full circle in this idea of visual grammar, if we could if we could read these things with more precision, what would we be saying about this particular occurrence? Do you think? Well, okay. Let, let let's say that that my my reading of it is is correct, and it's an attempt to bring a little bit of sort of you know classic mid century style to houses that go up in a few weeks or a month that don't have any real distinction of style to them, and you know like. Neutra was an architect, mm. right? So I think there's an attempt to link his kind of brand of modernism and style to these houses that really don't follow the modernist principles very well. Like they're not using the space elegantly. They're not. I mean, they certainly are unadorned. Let's let's you know let's give them that. Uh, there's there's no decoration in there whatsoever. But in a way, it's like saying that this house now has an architectural stamp of approval because we're using these cool architect design numbers. Maybe that's enough. I, I, you know, for some people, maybe that's that's going to do it for them. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> and you know, on the other hand, on the other hand, lots of people don't care about fonts. I'm just going to say that, even though it breaks my heart. You, you know, like my students will say things like, "You know, I'm noticing typefaces all over the place," and I'm like, "Good," but not everyone does. You know, um, there, there's a house in my neighborhood where they installed the eight upside down. And you can tell because the top of the eight is usually a little smaller than the <laughs> bottom. And it just it just drives me wild. Every time I go by the house, I want to knock on the door and say, excuse me, are you aware of this? Can, can I change it? Like, I've got a screwdriver. Like, I really want to fix it. So <laughs> I think for people who are hyper aware of stuff like this, yeah, it's something to think about. But I, I, I hate to say it, but I really don't think most people care too much. Like, they might see it as, you know, a, an emblem of gentrification, but... You know, rather than focus on the house number, look at the house that it's stuck to. But but that broader thing of, of fonts in our, our visual landscape, it, I mean, they are, of course, everywhere and they are all chosen with, with, with great intent. There is nothing, well, there must be some examples where it's accidental, but by and large, they are put there with purpose and they are, they are as they are for, for, for reasons. Yeah, if you've got someone who who is a designer doing it, but, you know, there has been a great sort of democratization of design, which I think is a wonderful Mm. thing. But with without a little bit of knowledge of fonts, you have things like your mom calling you up and saying, oh, I just did my shopping list in Palatino. <laughs> and you say, well, OK, but why? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was pretty. You know, so th- there's a lot of like sort of randomness being uh, applied to the choosing of fonts. And I think, you know. That, that's where it starts to get a little bit dicey. Like everybody hates Comic Sans, right? With good reason. But it ha- But you know, I, I will make a, a little defense for it. It's very easy to read. Well, I won't say very easy, but it's simpler for people with dyslexia 
to read because okay. the characters have a lot of dis- disambiguation. So in other words, the D is shaped so differently from the B that it's it's more simple to, to distinguish the one from the other. So even something crummy like that, you know, it, it might have its benefits, but I don't think most people spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff, quite honestly. I'm curious for the most appropriate use for Palatino. Oh, I don't know that there is one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of Palatino. I mean, you know, it, it was one of those typefaces that I, I believe it came with the initial like operating system on the Mac. Like that's uh-huh. that's how basic it was. I mean, it, it, that's not where it started, of course, but it just became like the the invitation font for a long time. So I, I don't even know what you would want to use it for. Now. It is interesting, as you say, the invitation font. We we speak about <laughs> the the gentrification font that they become associated with particular things. I would call Comic Sans the community newsletter font, for example. Well, right, or the, the, the fifth graders, you know, high school, fifth graders book report font, you know. Yes, perfect. <laughs> what I did on my summer vacation. And it's also become like the ironic, I'm so bad, I'm good font, right? Like I can use Comic Sans because I know it's wink, wink, a silly typeface. Oh, I love I love a bit of font irony. Angela, <laughs> look, th- thank you for for letting us dip our toes in the world of visual grammar. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Angela Rikers, writer, art director, educator, and her newest book, The Elements of Visual Grammar, a designer's guide for writers, scholars, and professionals. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.